0: This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly... You will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com southpawpod.
1: Today on Southpaw, I am excited to have Dr. Paul Reichstad. Paul received his PhD in philosophy from the University of Cambridge. Currently, he's a lecturer in political theory at the University of Edinburgh. He focuses his work on human development, freedom and democracy, the future of economic institutions, and prefigurative politics. He has a book out called Prefigurative Politics, Building Tomorrow Today. He's also one of the creators of the Red Plateau's YouTube channel that teaches people about Marx. And that's why Paul's here, because we've never actually done an episode on Karl Marx. He's been brought up a bunch, but we've never dedicated a whole episode to him. And part of the purpose of South Paul is to introduce listeners to left politics and ultimately help them become better thinkers as well as human beings. So with all that said, hi, Paul. Hi, Sam. Now, here in the U.S., ever since the Cold War, there's been this retconning of history. I've met so many people who think World War II was fought against Hitler, Stalin, and Marx. No mention of Japan or Italy. And Marx has been made to be this boogeyman. If you ask people here who he is, I think most Americans would say he was a dictator rather than a philosopher and an academic. The Mandela effect runs that deep here in the U.S. So let's start there. Who is Karl Marx, and was he the leader of any European countries? So, first of
2: all, Karl Marx was not the leader of any country. (laughs) He wasn't part of any government in any state. Um, He had no major political office in any sort of official mainstream capacity, not the head of any corporation, any think tank, any government, anything. He is, however, probably the most influential socialist thinker so far in human history. He did a bunch of groundbreaking work in political economy, political theory, he was a journalist, and of course he was also a socialist revolutionary. He was born in the city of Trier, which at that point was in Prussia, but now is in Germany, in the year of 1818. He was from a Jewish family that converted to Protestantism because his father had a job in the civil service, and this was a very anti-Semitic society. He initially studied law at university, so he did a kind of law that prepares you for going into the civil service. He ended up getting into philosophy and then writing a PhD on ancient Greek philosophy. He initially wanted to enter academia, but that was difficult because the government was very much opposed to the kind of radical democrat and young Hegelian ideas um, that he was associated with. we can talk a bit about that later. So instead of going into academia, he became a journalist. Um, Eventually, his journalist would be banned and he would be forced out of Prussia, in part because he advocated things like free speech, free press and democracy which at the time most, if not all, liberals were against and all conservatives were against as well. After some time working as a journalist, he observed sort of the growth of capitalist relations. He saw how the capitalist economy began to shape law and politics. He started reading more about political economy, especially in the works of British political economists like Adam Smith. Um, And he met with groups of socialist and communist workers, and in time he became a socialist himself. After that, so after he moved to to Paris, he worked as a journalist. He did a bunch of groundbreaking research into political economy, uh, and he also did research into history and into fields that we would now call things like sociology, international affairs. He read a lot of emerging anthropology, and he even read sort of groundbreaking work on chemistry that was beginning to study how humans are depleting the natural environment and are causing ecological devastation under sort of modern day capitalism. He moved around a fair bit early on, but he lived most of his adult life in London with his family, often under very poor conditions. At various points in life, he was hounded by the police and vilified in, in the mainstream press for his convictions. He was a lifelong activist for workers' rights. He was part of the what was called the First International, or the International Workingmen's Association, which was the first international working class organization and has a very important role in the history of socialism. His magnum opus, so his sort of greatest work, Capital, uh, in German Das Kapital, was unfinished when he died in 1883. Though he was not super well known during his life, he became one of the most influential socialist thinkers ever, and he continues to be read and debated throughout the world today. Um, As I mentioned, he was never part of any government or what we would call a political party that stood for elections. He is mainly known as a fervent critic of all forms of unfreedom and as one of the most probing analysers of capitalism, especially of the late 1800s. He is still sort of astoundingly popular among people. So even before the sort of recent revival of interest in socialism, there was a BBC poll in 1999 that voted him the most important thinker of the millennium, ahead of people like Albert Einstein. And I think that says a lot about the force of his ideas and writings, despite the constant and sometimes impressive misrepresentations of these ideas and writings over the last century
1: and a half. So can you just briefly define for us then what is a liberal in comparison to a socialist? So liberals, roughly sort of in much of
2: the 1800s, they wanted limited voting rights, typically for richer men, not for women, Um, depending on the country. They wanted to exclude um, most, if not all, people of color, and they wanted to exclude working class people. They typically wanted some separation of church and state. And they were committed to kind of nationalist nation building. They were typically pro-imperialist and pro-colonialist, though there was some variation there. Um, And they were often for limited kinds of freedoms of speech, press, conviction, and association. Limited, that is, they would often exclude union rights, um, and they typically wanted to exclude religions that weren't Christianity. Uh, Marx differs in all these respects. So he wanted a full democratization of all of society. Even before he was a socialist, he takes this view. Uh, he insisted on not excluding women, people of color, working class people, nobody. He wanted everyone to be included in the complete self governance of themselves as part of a society. He wanted to extend sort of true democracy in this sense not only to sort of put the polity but to all of the economy as well and he wanted full freedoms of speech, press, conviction, and association for all human beings and that put him in a kind of radical democratic camp which was opposed to pretty much all of mainstream liberalism and to all of conservatism at the time.
1: So then what is Marxism?
2: Uh, I broadly speaking agree with something that Nietzsche writes in, I think, early on in the genealogy of morality, where he says basically that for anything that has a history, it's impossible to give a proper definition of it. So it's impossible to give, you know, in a single sense or two, the kind of essential features that something will have, because if it has a history, it will tend to grow and change over time. And so many features that it has will also tend to grow and vary. I think Marxism being something with a history is best understood more like a tree with different branches. So if you imagine something like a family tree, it might start off with like, say, one pair of ancestors at some point, like one father and or one mother, and it will branch off into their children, their grandchildren and so on. And they will tend to vary and differentiate, move different places and so on over time. And I think Marxism is best thought of in a kind of a similar way. So you start off with with Marx and perhaps also with Engels, his, his best friend and close collaborator. And then what happens, because Marx and Engels famously, they don't write a whole lot about what the future society should look like. They don't write a whole lot about the precise strategy we should use to reach that society. Loads of later Marxists then divide and differentiate themselves from each other according to strategy. So very few people are sort of simply quote-unquote marxists they're for example council communist marxists who have one particular approach to strategy they are leninist marxists or they are marxist leninist trotskyists or they are marxist leninist maoists or so on and there's loads of different details in terms of how they analyze their society the precise things they're trying to do right now and their sort of strategy for reaching the kind of uh, long-term future goals that they want um we can't perhaps compare it a little bit to the history of Christianity, right? If you look at all the different kinds of Christianity or all different kinds of things that call themselves Christianity, they actually have very little in common, right? Um, So there are some forms that, for example, believe in the Trinity, like traditional Catholicism, Lutheranism, and there are some forms that don't, like Arianism. There are some, most forms have an idea of a distinct creator God who then creates all of the created world. But there are other forms of Christianity that are, essentially just a kind of optimistic atheism uh, where God just refers to the kind of inherent goodness inside all of human beings or something. And there are strands of Christianity that are very ecumenical and open. There are others that are very narrow. And there's a lot of variation, and there's often no real specific doctrines that they all necessarily have in common, aside from certain names and a certain history. Having said that, again, there's, there's not a whole lot of things that all different things that are called Marxism have in common. They all do tend to be committed to the general idea of universal human emancipation via working-class self-emancipation. So something I want to mention here. So we are often told this look like, really simple idea. I like, and like universities are responsible for this as well because they sometimes teach this this idea where like the right libertarians are for freedom, the socialists are for equality, and the liberal centrists in the middle are trying to balance the two out. This is like tremendously tremendously wrong right like there's no part of this that's actually accurate Um, with regard to many kinds of socialists like the syndicalists and the anarchists they typically fought for both freedom and equality and they didn't think they pushed in opposite directions but rather they thought they pushed in the same directions Marx himself actually thinks that equality is an incoherent and just pointless political value so he doesn't advocate equality at all he advocates freedom And the same goes for most of the Marxist tradition. So most strands of Marxism actually say they have no moral or ethical content. They're just a descriptive analysis of what society is like. But the ones that do say something about what you might call ethics or morality or normative ideas, so ideas about what should be the case uh, or what's really valuable for human beings, they almost always emphasize freedom and very rarely, uh, almost never emphasize equality. Again, because there's a huge amount of variation, there are differences on this. But overwhelmingly, Marxism is for freedom, not equality. So that's one thing they all tend to have in common. Uh, they also have a goal of what they often call communism, uh, which basically, yeah, in, I think in all forms of Marxism, refers to a particular kind of free and stateless society. Uh, Marx himself says fairly little about what this should look like or would look like, but he has a few sort of broad things he says throughout his works. So, one thing he says it will be organized bottom up via networks of sort of participatory democratic councils. So, instead of being ruled by others like sort of kings and queens um, or by wealthy CEOs, we will be ruled by ourselves through participatory democratic councils. He thinks communism will have democratic planning rather than the kind of top down central planning that we see in large capitalist corporations or in modern day states. Uh, or the kind of markets, the kind of competitive markets we see under contemporary capitalism. So in other words, he supports bottom-up democratic planning rather than top-down planning or uh, capitalist-type markets. He thinks it will see an end to the hierarchical division of labor. So you won't have a division of labor where some people essentially do all the sort of work on the floor on the ground, and a few people do all the planning and managing and ordering them around. So in other words, there won't be a distinction between bosses and workers. We'll all be sort of running society together. And finally, he has the idea that in the society, everyone will contribute according to their ability and receive according to their need. Now, like throughout Marx's history, there are loads of differences in terms of how they think about self-emancipation. And there are also differences in how they define self-emancipation. And of course, like I mentioned earlier, they differ tremendously in terms of their strategy. in addition to this emphasis on on universal human emancipation through working class self-emancipation, they tend to emphasize three different kinds of things, all of which people write like books on on their own. One of them is a particular way of understanding human beings and society, uh, what is sometimes called the theory of praxis. And so basically this is a way of thinking about human beings and society in terms of social relations and in terms of processes. Uh, a second thing is they tend to emphasize historical change over time. So they have the idea that we are at a particular stage of society called capitalism, a particular kind of society, and there's this another stage or kind of society, for example, socialism or communism, that can come after capitalism and that would be more free and that that is worth fighting for. Um, and of course, this is partly based on a certain understanding of history where we've seen throughout human history changes from one kind of society to another. So we've seen, for example, the emergence of feudalism out of late Roman classical slavery. And we've seen the emergence of capitalism in Europe, especially out of feudalism. And the third thing that I tend to emphasize is a certain analysis of the political economy of capitalism. And the first thing I want to say about this is that when Marxists look into the political economy of capitalism, they're not doing kind of moral critique. And Marx himself essentially wasn't doing that when he was writing Capital. He does have views about what's wrong with Capital and Capitalism, but what he devoted most of his adult life to researching was not why Capitalism supposedly is bad, but how it actually works. It's supposed to be a scientific or an empirical theory of how Capitalism really functions. And the reason he thought that was important was because he thought understanding how capitalism actually works is vital for a working class movement that tries to replace it with something better the same way for example a lot of feminist theorists today spend a lot of time developing theories of how gender and patriarchy actually function because they try they're trying to understand the thing that they want a feminist movement to replace or eliminate um, what Marxist sort of political economy tends to to do is that it tends to be very good at explaining, the sort of class struggle dynamics of capitalists and bosses on the one hand and workers on the other. Uh, It tends to explain the tendency of capitalism towards concentrating and centralizing wealth and power. Um, It tends to explain the tendency for capitalist competition to lead to monopolies and cartels of different kinds. Um, And partly as a result of this, it tends to also explain how capitalism leads to certain forms of imperialism and colonialism, And of course, it offers an explanation for how crises happen and why they happen. Um, So, that's a lot of things. So, I'm going to sum those up. So, one thing they often emphasize is uh, universal human emancipation through the correct kind of working class self emancipation, a commitment to a future society that they call socialism or communism, a certain way of understanding human beings and society, an emphasis on historical change over time, and an emphasis on a certain kind of political economy. Uh, for understanding how capitalism actually functions
1: so you alluded to this earlier but how did marx come to develop these ideas
2: marx's ideas are put together from a very interesting set of different sources and it's very difficult to know which to sort of emphasize but i'll I'll mention just a couple of them so one of the most famous is a very influential german philosopher called uh, georg wilhelm friedrich hegel One of the things that Marx took from Hegel was the way Hegel, well, not the way Hegel thinks about historical development, but an interest in really large-scale historical changes over time, an emphasis on the role of consciousness in that kind of social change. So Hegel was very aware of the role of ideas in human life and in human society and he had the important insight that the forms of life we have really shape how we think and how we feel about different things, the kind of art that we create, the kind of things we do to entertain ourselves, the ideas we develop about things like philosophy, um, science, religion, and so on. And another thing Hegel was very interested in was the growth of what he thought was the growth of freedom throughout human history. Now, Hegel also has a bunch of really... um, really, really racist and sexist uh, liberal ideas that he shared with other influential German thinkers like Kant, uh, whom he drew a lot on. Um, And I I, I would say most liberals and conservatives shared these ideas at the time. And one thing I want to emphasize is that Marx never seems to have shared those ideas at all, as far as we can tell. Now, there's a bit of a paradox in Hegel. So on the one hand, he has a bunch of thinking about how history changes. There's this march of freedom throughout history. And on the other hand, he tends to, in his writings, often glorify either the fairly repressive Prussian society of his day or want only sort of minor reforms to that society. So after he dies, there we end up with these two kinds of movements. We end up with a kind of right-wing Hegelianism that emphasizes, look, this is the end of the historical development. We have reached perfect freedom. Let's now be conservatives and just lie back and reflect upon and just enjoy the amazing... Um, absolute monarchy slash dictatorship that we have. <laughs> um, so that's that's one side. And the other side, um, which um, as you can imagine, is the side that Marx likes more, uh, are called the young Hegelians. And they're, I think, and they're a varied bunch, right? But I think they're mainly concerned with the question of how to continue the sort of march of freedom in human history and in human society. And they're concerned with the question of how we can continue to make society more free now. Now often These are portrayed as sort of politically neutral thinkers that are just really into atheism or something. But that's actually a really kind of bad misrepresentation. Um, They were often very pro-democratic or pro-democratic republics in, again, a country that was a a full-blown monarchy, uh, what we would call a dictatorship. They were often important advocates for free speech, press, etc. They supported freedom of religion in a country where there wasn't really freedom of religion very much. And they were especially interested in a struggle against the organized church at the time. Because you have to remember, this is not the United States where you have a separation between church and state. Here, you had a state church where the monarch was literally the head of the church as well and really did make use of that power. So one of the things they really focused on was criticizing uh, the Christian religion and criticizing the church because they thought it was a particularly important uh, sort of pillar in the repressive society that they were trying to change. Now, there's actually an interesting bit there, because Marx actually thought that their emphasis on criticizing Christianity and the state church was misplaced. Uh, he thought that was basically pointless and not helpful to anyone. So those things are fairly well known. So Hegel, the young Hegelians. But I think there's, there's a fairly solid evidence from, from Marx's notes, some of his earliest letters to his friends, his like PhD uh, thesis, Uh, his journalism, and some of the company he kept while he was at university, um, that was also influenced by what is sometimes called the sort of radical enlightenment ideas. Um, uh, And these are the ideas we find in a bunch of thinkers, people like Condorcet, Diderot, uh, Thomas Paine, um, Mary Wollstonecraft, and a bunch of others, tend to go back to Spinoza. And this is something that is certainly controversial, but I think this seems to be where Marx gets most of his sort of political commitments, because he never seems to have agreed with Hegel's kind of liberal politics. Instead, he seems to have taken up a kind of radical enlightenment set of ideas, where he's committed to a kind of uh, substance monism and atheism. Um, He's committed to a kind of secular ethics uh, with a commitment to a kind of general interest, so a kind of idea of human development and flourishing, and in particular, human freedom. Uh, He supports full democracy throughout society. He has a commitment to um, generally human freedom. Uh, He really emphasizes freedoms of press, freedoms of speech, association, and conviction. Um, He supports a complete secularization of government and the law. Um, He seems to support feminism, anti-racism, and have a broad commitment to what we might consider to be uh, legal, political, and social equality across race, gender, ethnicity, religion, and so on. So that's, that's where he seems to kind of start off in the sort of 1840s, so 1842, 43. And there are a few things that lead him to really develop his ideas. Uh, one thing that's really important is a series of articles he writes, I believe in 1842, on the theft of wood. Uh, I won't go into the details, but one of the things he notices is the ways in which economic relations start to change the laws and start to change the politics in the society around him in ways that are really governed, really controlled by the ruling classes. And he doesn't find, he doesn't quite have the tools to understand how this is operating. Alongside this, of course, he's advocating his radical democratic ideas. And he's starting to think about who, so which kind of people, which kind of group, which kind of part of society can help bring these ideas into reality. Uh, And the conclusion he comes to is that the emerging working sort of capitalist working class, the proletariat, seems to be the kind of agent, the only kind of agent that can bring about a truly democratic society. So, okay, he finds this agent and that leads him to study political economy, again, especially the works of people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, who are also very much interested in the class structure of capitalism, even though people don't mention this a whole lot. And he also ends up making contact with the socialist and communist workers of his day. And that's especially after he moves to Paris.
1: So you mentioned uh, Marx becoming a socialist or the socialist, communist or even anarchists of his day. So was there socialism or anarchism or communism before Marx? Because a lot of people believe that Marx invented all of these things.
2: Yeah, no, no. there were Yes, there were a whole bunch of socialists uh, slash communists before Marx. So at this time, socialism and communism are typically used by sort of slightly different groups, depending on which language they're speaking and, and where they're from. But they essentially are interchangeable. There's no clear difference between one or the other. The the words are, are basically synonyms. Um, and yeah, you have a bunch of other early socialists. There are what's called the utopian socialists like Charles Fourier and Robert Owen who came up with sort of grand schemes for what the future society could be like. Uh, there were mutualists like uh, Proudhon in France who came up with, uh, again, a certain scheme for both what the future society could and should be like and how to reach it. Uh, there were important socialist feminists like Flora Tristan who sort of to bring together um, the feminist movement and the emerging workers movement. And again, like the others, had really interesting ideas about how um, workers could begin to build a new society Um, and hopefully transition out of capitalism. Um, Before Marx, uh, the words socialism and communism were both used to refer to sort of a bunch of ideas about how we could replace capitalism with a freer and more democratic form of economic organization. They really did focus most of their efforts on the economy, but uh, many of the thinkers also really paid attention to how to organize aspects of politics, as well as, for example, gender relations and sexual relations. Um, with respect to anarchism, that depends on your definition. There's a lot of, there's a lot of disagreement about how to define it. Uh, if you mean anarchism in a very broader sense of, say, being opposed to to states, being opposed to hierarchies, anarchism has been around for a long, long time, much earlier. If, by contrast, you mean the kind of anarchism that uh, ended up becoming influential in most of the sort of left far-left workers' movement in the world before 1917, the sort of boom that called itself often anarchist or syndicalist or anarcho-syndicalist. This is a term that people start using in the first international... um, I don't remember the exact details. I want to say late 1860s, early 1870s, something like that. Uh, And that was during the time Marx was alive yeah so 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 briefly put there there was a lot of of socialism and communism before Marx he was one thinker among among many, and he spent a good amount of his time criticizing other socialists and communists
1: so then you summed up anarchism at the time, so what's the difference between that and syndicalism
2: yeah so th- there are there are a bunch of sometimes really acrimonious debates about how to define anarchism. Syndicalism is easier, but I'll, I'll do the Um, I'll do anarchism first. So one definition of anarchism is something like just thinking all states are illegitimate or thinking that all hierarchies or all unjustified hierarchies are illegitimate. If that's your definition of anarchism, then it's uh, an incredibly diverse thing. It's not a unified movement, and it's existed throughout, probably throughout all forms of human society that have things like states in them. Because whenever you have institutions of hierarchy and domination, you'll probably also have people who criticize them and who are against them. If, by contrast, you're referring to the kind of international movement that called itself anarchist during the late 1800s, and especially during the early 1900s when it was at its height, um, which included, for example, anarchist unions and thinkers across like China, Japan, Argentina, Italy, France, the US, etc., This movement has a bunch of much more specific things in common. Um, So they're typically advocates of freedom and equality. They're against um, all forms of of hierarchy, of systematic social hierarchy. They're especially against capitalism, feudalism, and the state. Uh, They wanted to establish full individual freedom and equality through a kind of cooperative, uh, egalitarian, and stateless kind of socialism. And they wanted to establish this kind of future socialist society through the direct action of the working class and the peasantry um, that would carry out a kind of international and internationalist social revolution that would abolish capitalism uh, and the state and feudalism. Now, syndicalism, it can be briefly defined as a revolutionary kind of trade unionism. So basically, they try to construct radical trade unions that will use their union activities to gradually Grow in strength and numbers, and replace capitalism with a new society that is based either in part or in whole on union structures, that is, democratic union structures. There's a thing called anarcho syndicalism, which is a variety of syndicalism that explicitly aims for that future society to be anarchist and that tries to reach it by employing specifically anarchist means. Now, both syndicalism and anarcho syndicalism focus on the union as an essential instrument of struggle both because it's important for winning reforms in the present and because it's important for gradually enabling us to transition to a future society.
1: So a term that we've heard a lot in the last few years is democratic socialism. Basically, what is democratic socialism? Okay, yeah, so,
2: yeah, so I, I'm going to explain this through a bit of history. Um, so when, when Marxist political parties first started to sort of take shape, they called themselves social democratic parties. And they called themselves that because they had a very sort of simple, basic idea. They wanted to bring full democracy, not just to the states. So remember, the states they're dealing with do not have universal suffrage. They all exclude women. Uh, Most of them exclude working class people. The ones that do eventually include working class people end up having working class people's votes count for way less um, than, for example, aristocrats' votes. So the idea of these parties, they call themselves social democratic. Because they want to bring full democracy, so full popular control over all of society, both to the state and, or both to sort of politics, but also to the economy. And what, again, what they mean by democracy here is that we all rule our collective life together. And they take this from the sort of terminology that the people used to use in ancient Greece. So they say look, for any kind of human organization or institution, there are essentially three ways it can be ruled. It can be de facto ruled by one person, then you call it a monarchy. It can be ruled by a small minority of people, then you call it an oligarchy, ruled by the few. Or it can be ruled by all the members, in which case you call it a democracy, ruled by all, by the demos, by the people. Um, And this is the kind of idea that the social democratic parties are drawing on here. So they won't say, well, we all want to rule our society as a whole together. Now, what happens throughout the 1900s is that the parties that call themselves social democratic parties, as they start taking power, they, start, they change societies, but they basically introduce a kind of mixed economy, so a mixture of, of state control and capitalism, and develop the modern welfare state, as we know it, in, in, especially in Western Europe. But they give up on the idea of trying to reach socialism or trying to reach communism, right? They essentially try to administer capitalism in a different way, arguably a better way, but they give up on the long-term goal of socialist or communist or of a socialist or communist future society. On the other hand, a bunch of people who split off from them and form a different international organization called the Third International. Um, they are often very influenced by by Lenin and by various kinds of Leninists, of different people who claim to be his followers, like Stalin and Mao. And they often emphasize on having a single party take over the state, introduce a single party state, nationalize the whole economy, and introduce central planning. And they say that will long-term lead to universal human emancipation and a free stateless society. So then you have this thing that there are still a bunch of people left, especially in, in North America and in Western Europe, who reject both of these approaches. They don't want to do just what the Social Democrats ended up doing, of administering capitalism in a different way, but they also don't want to carry out a coup or a guerrilla warfare to conquer the state, and they don't want a single-party state society, and they don't want to nationalize all of the economy. They, what they want to do is kind of the old idea that Um, social democratic parties said they wanted to do at the beginning which is stand for election uh, win elections in a kind of standard representative state and use that state power to gradually transition towards a kind of socialist or communist society and the people who still wanted to do this they needed a different word they couldn't call themselves for example communists because that was used by by the leninists for example that they disagreed with they couldn't call themselves social democrats because that was being used by the parties who are now just administering capitalism So the term they came up with was democratic socialism because that would emphasize both that they were socialist and that they supported what today is called representative democratic states. Uh, So typically what the people call themselves democratic socialists today is like Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn. They say as a long-term goal, they want to reach socialism. And in practice, what they tend to advocate is stronger welfare states, more state involvement, but also certain proposals for
1: democratizing workplaces and workplace governance. So with that said then, what is capitalism? And the reason why I ask is because we all think we know what it is, but it's like water, right? It's like we drink it all the time. <laughs> we think we know what water is because we're always around it. Mm. But do we really know what it is? Like do people know the chemical compounds that constitute water? Do we understand it in a scientific sense? Do we understand it at all, right? And I think it's the same thing with capitalism. I think we mistake uh being around it or being ubiquitous as being fluent or an expert in the subject. So I don't want to assume any of that because none of that is true for most people. So what is capitalism?
2: Okay, so, so briefly put, capitalism is the, is the word used for the kind of economic system that we live in now. Um, like any real sort of living thing, it's hard to really give a good strict definition that applies to all the different cases. Like remember what I said earlier about Nietzsche, right? Anything with a history can't really be properly defined in a way that's accurate across all the things that are that are of that kind or that that term is or that a concept is used for Um, but i think there are sort of three features if you want to have a very simple in a nutshell description of what capitalism tends to contain so here are three ideas Uh, it tends to have private ownership of the means of production and the class division between owners and producers so private ownership in large-scale productive assets right so personal property is stuff like you know that my laptop um my clothes, stuff like that. But private property is the more large-scale stuff, like large tracts of land, factories, um, lots of intellectual property, owning a corporation, stuff like that, the kind of property that gives you power in society, that gives you power over people. And the important part of capitalism, which that includes, is the class division between owners and producers, right? So you have one class of people who own virtually all the productive property in society, and you have a bunch of people who are excluded from productive property in society. And the only way they can live sort of decent lives is by selling their labor to those who do own the productive property. So in other words, if I am born working class, generally speaking, I will have to go work for a capitalist, for an employer, or a so-called job creator, uh, in order to be able to live a decent life. So that's one thing. A second thing is, is the institution of a free labor market. So unlike under feudalism, where peasants are sort of bound to the land and aren't allowed to leave and go elsewhere, or slavery, where they are literally owned by their employers, under capitalism, workers are formally free to leave their employer when they want to. Uh, On the other hand, your employer is also free to to sort of not care about workers as soon as they stop working for them. Um, So that's the second thing. Uh, The third thing is a kind of dynamic of capital accumulation um, that's oriented towards continuously expanding capital rather than being oriented, for example, towards satisfying human needs or anything else. So the, you have an economy which is essentially driven by capital's uh, incessant need to expand and grow as much as possible. And you end up with a whole society that's geared towards um, profit maximization to avoid the ensuing economic crisis if that profit maximization ends up failing. So I'd say these three things are, are kind of the closest you can say to a a broad definition of what capitalism tends to be like.
1: So how did capitalism come to be?
2: So there again, this is something that there's quite a lot of debate about, but I wanna say there are two kind of main sources of capitalism as it initially uh, develops. Uh, the first is in cities and for long distance trade. There existed kind of capital type relations in smaller scales, in limited environments, in cities, Um, for a long time under feudalism. Uh, A second source that Ellen Makesens Wood in particular has has worked to highlight is the changes in English agriculture, I believe in the 1500s and and 1600s, as it gradually uh, moved towards more and more market dependence. Um, There are a lot of details here, and the details are disputed, but these seem to be the origins. The, The first properly capitalist society seems to have been England, after England developed capitalism, you then see a bunch of other European countries often introducing capitalism through state-led reforms. So there's this, this idea we often have that market relations, capitalist type market relations are sort of natural, and that they are wholly distinct and even opposed to the state. And historically speaking, that is, that is just a lie, right? Either that, they, they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, in, in, in England, it seems to have sort of grown on its own. Uh, but again, with, with significant state involvement. But in other countries, like for example, Germany, it was a deliberate state-led uh, project and program for reform, partly in order to ensure that they would be viable imperial competitors to England. Now, this is sort of extremely, roughly speaking, the case in, in Europe. Uh, in most of the colonized world, of course, the history is different. There it is violently imposed from the outside um, by European and or North American colonizers, um, where, it's, where it's used as part of an effort to extract as much wealth from these societies as possible, again, usually in order to maximize profits of capitalists back home.
1: You already got into this, but explicitly, what's wrong with capitalism?
2: I mean, if you care about freedom, there's, there's a lot of stuff wrong with capitalism, I think. Um, let's, let's start just with workplaces. Essentially, a capitalist workplace just is a dictatorship. Right. You have a small minority of people like bosses, the owners at the top who make most major decisions and the rest of us just have to live with it and take it. Um, So we have bosses that they decide which tasks we do and how we do them. They decide which things are made, which things and how they are made, whether that's goods or services. Um, They can, for example, sanction us by increasing our workload or giving us worse or more damaging tasks. Um, they make decisions about things like employment conditions. Uh, they can do things if we don't do what they want. They can, they can fire us. They can dock our wages. They can restrict our opportunities for things like training and promotion and so on. Uh, and of course, they decide on long-term decisions about things like strategy and investments and so on. For example, what to invest in, whether to move our workplace to a different country to exploit people worse, whether to invest in green technologies or not, and so on. So control over all these things is something that a completely unelected and unaccountable minority have, and that the rest of us just, when we work there, have to live with. Now, so the argument here is not necessarily, right, that bosses use these powers to our detriment, to screw us over, right? Rather, the issue is that they have the power to decide these things over over us over others right so it's a bit like a dictator in a state like a dictator in a state may or may not use their power to everyone's benefit but the problem isn't just how they use their power the problem is that they have this power over us to begin with right Um, so there are a couple of counter arguments to this so you can say well look you can choose whether to to go to work or not you can choose whether to have a job or not and that that is technically true, and that's a, an important difference between capitalism and for example slavery um but if if you're poor if you're if you're working class broadly speaking, you have to work for someone uh and if all your employers are these kinds of dictators, being able to choose which dictator to work for, if you have to work for one to sort of have a decent life, it still doesn't change the fact that while you are at work, you are on free right. Uh, because you're still um, what Marx is called materially coerced. You're forced by material conditions. You're forced by your need to have a decent life to go into these relations where some people have a lot of arbitrary power over you. And I guess I going to make. I guess the, the final point is that just because you choose to enter into a relation doesn't mean that the relation is itself free. That there's no domination there, right? So, for example, if uh, I chose voluntarily, and let's suppose under no coercion whatsoever to sell myself into slavery i would still be a slave after i had done that and similarly just because you choose in some sense to enter into a relation where a boss has power over you doesn't mean that just because you made that choice you are necessarily free Um, there's kind of an interesting irony here right because workplaces in like contemporary capitalism especially in countries in the us where there's less regulation of these things there seems to be more oppression in workplaces than there was, for example, in the Soviet Union. Um, like, modern-day capitalist bosses have a lot more detailed control of the workplace. They, they try things like video surveillance. They try to control people's bathroom breaks. They punish people for what they do in their free time. They kind of force a lot of people, especially service workers, to like, seem happy and be subservient to their bosses no matter what they do. And in the USSR, by contrast, so in the Soviet Union, bosses couldn't actually fire you because they had this like politically imposed thing about, about, full, about full employment. So these bosses, although they had a lot of arbitrary power, they never dreamed of the kind of detailed micromanagement and sort of oppressionness of every aspect of your, your work life and sometimes even of your personal life that, that we see in a lot of capitalism today. So that's one thing, just essentially... Uh, living in a dictatorship while you're at work. Another thing is control over state politics uh, in the interest of the ruling class. So we have some obvious examples of this, right? We have, for example, a stable supermajority in the US for something like single-payer healthcare, but it's still, so for some mysterious reason keeps not happening, right? We have uh, majorities against, for example, invading Iraq back in the day, but it, it still happened. Uh, you can we can, for example, look at who's in power, right? Like essentially the people who are also the top politicians are in the wealthiest segment of society and their friends. And we can also look at empirical studies, um, the, the most thorough of which are a guidance and page study from 2014, and which was on the United States and was replicated in the Netherlands uh, by a guy called Wouter Sackel, which I can't pronounce properly, um, very recently. And both of those studies, one in a, what's considered to be a very unequal capitalist society the US, and the other for what's considered often to be a more kind of, more kind of equal, more liberal, more social democratic society the Netherlands, they both found that the majority of the population has no significant influence upon state action, whereas a small minority of the population strongly and consistently does. Um, so that's the second one, right? Control over politics de facto by the ruling classes. There's a third one, um, which is sometimes called the, the impersonal domination of capitalist market forces. So Marx has this idea that when we go to work under capitalism, when we play our role in the capitalist economy, we're not only producing, for example, goods and services, we're also producing and reproducing capitalist social relations. And he thinks that these social relations come to be a kind of like a kind of independent power. That that is exercised over sort of both workers and over employers, over capitalists as well. So he thinks that capitalist social relations become a kind of like alien power that has, that sort of wields a certain kind of power over all of us. So this this is kind of a familiar idea. So you know, Adam Smith has this idea of the invisible hand, right? So he thinks that even though nobody's forcing us to to do things like maximize profits. And again, this is actually not Adam Smith's idea, but this is what later people take from Adam Smith. Smith means something very specific by the invisible hand, that it's, it's not this, but other people take this idea. And they say, well, look, what Smith showed, they think, is that capitalist market forces force us all to work to maximize profit and through that to realize, say, the common interest or the general interest or the common good. And Marx says, if you take this seriously, if you take the idea that Certain kinds of social relations can actually have power over all of us, say the need for maximizing profit, forcing us all to act in certain ways. Then what's actually happening is that we've created a power that is controlling us, that is dominating us. And that's something that makes us unfree. So in other words, he sees this kind of in what we often call a kind of invisible hand metaphor as a kind of invisible hand that's forcing us and controlling us. And that's, he thinks that that's a bad thing, something that sort of makes us unfree. And we see this kind of thing fairly, fairly often, right? So for example, capitalists are tend to be forced to act as capitalism demands. They tend to be forced to maximize profits at all costs, because if they don't, they will be outcompeted by others, they will lose their capital and they will be sort of thrown into the working class, right? So if a company or a business doesn't continuously maximize profits and expand, either they'll get outcompeted by others or they'll be taken over by another corporation. Um, And of course, this is why capitalism always has to grow and why individual capitalists acting rationally often have what you might call socially irrational consequences. So even if they might individually want to invest in, for example, green technology, they don't want to outsource production to another country where people will work for less money. If they invest in expensive green technologies, if they don't outsource production, they know that they will be outcompeted by other companies, so so they will have to do so anyway. Um, And I want to say, I think this is one of the reasons why capitalism is is inherently undemocratic. Not only do you have a situation where the upper classes control the politics of society, but it also doesn't really matter in the economy if, for example, everyone wants higher wages, decent jobs, or global warming to to stop, to take this problem seriously and solve it. So long as they are not things that affect long-term prices, so long as they don't contribute to profit-making in the right way, Capitalists will do nothing to take them into account, and they will try to ignore these problems for as long as they can. And again, it's not because these are individually bad people. It's because the system is set up to force people to act in these often quite harmful ways.
1: So it sounds a lot like the analogy I would make is like the Infinity Gauntlet from the Avengers comic books or the movies, right? Where it's the soft power. On planet earth we don't actually know about Thanos, or that the avengers are fighting him or that he has this absolute control of everything we just think things are normal and democratic and so because our world leaders don't have this actual gauntlet that it is invisible to us we assume we have autonomy when it's this wielder this invisible glove the infinity gauntlet controls everything we do and it kind of makes me think of that one way to see capitalism is there is this invisible hand of capitalism that forces us and controls everything that we do. And uh, something that you were talking about earlier, I was thinking about was um, that consent under duress is not consent. Right. So yeah, we have supposedly the freedom to change jobs or quit our jobs, things like that. But that's not the same as like true consent. Right. If that was the case, then Amazon workers wouldn't be peeing into bottles, right? If they had actual autonomy. And it's something that we understand from just thinking about consent in general or rape. If someone does something under duress or there's some kind of duress on their decision, then they didn't make that decision freely. And I think capitalism or our current work structure does that. And another point that everything that you said made me think about is you mentioned the service worker this pervasive idea in the workplace of the customer is always right and in a bigger umbrella idea that the boss is always right. So if they're always right and we have to do whatever they say, then they really de facto have ownership of our autonomy. And because it's not explicit and it's more of just this general way of thinking about things or just this general belief that we have. There was actually these incidents in the U S where somebody would call fast food restaurants and pretend to be the police. And then they would tell the manager of the fast food restaurant to do certain things to their employees because the police officer was basically saying, one of your employees stole some stuff. We need your help in catching them. So help us set up a sting. And because the police is an authority, the manager considers the police, in a way, their boss, they listen to them. And because the manager is now telling the employee to take off all their clothes or different things like that, the employee, because the boss is always right and you got to listen to the boss, does what the boss told him. So it actually leads to this sexual assault. And it happened in several different fast food restaurants. And the person who made these prank calls essentially never got caught. But the person who made these calls understood this would happen. And his prank would actually work, which was his prank was not even a prank, but it was just sexual assault, was because he knew that there was this underlying belief that if your boss tells you something, you have to always do what your boss tells you. Or in that bigger sense, right? In service worker, customer is always right. The customer is the boss. And so several women got assaulted. It's an elaborate story, but it was about like, you have to have them take off their clothes to see if... They're hiding anything. And then because they didn't listen to you, they have to be punished in some way. And how can something so crazy happen if people are free? Because that type of sentiment that the boss owns your autonomy is just underlying invisibly. I think that is the same thing why misguidedly people have such a hard time believing women when they're talking about workplace sexual harassment or assault because we think, oh, there's nothing explicit, right? Nothing on the rule books that say you have to listen. But it doesn't matter because it's so pervasive in our culture that in the workplace, you don't have autonomy.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's brilliant. Um, I, I'll go to, to the Thanos analogy first. So I think that's quite good, right? Um, but I also want to emphasize the kind of control capitalism has over us, according to, to Marx and others, is not absolute, right? We have the power to resist and we have the power to, to build something else and to, to fight for for changes to the society and to, to win changes, not only within the society, but to change society from the one we have to another one.
1: So we have some hope.
2: <laughs> well, Exactly, right? Um, because, you know, like like anything that humans build can also be sort of dismantled and replaced by human beings, at least in principle. That's a kind of idea that the Marxism is based on, right? It's based on the idea that we have a society that makes us really unfree, but that society also creates uh, a kind of... Um, sort of intersectional working class that is also capable and powerful enough if they organize correctly and do the right things not only to make us more free under capitalism but also to replace capitalism with a much more free socialist society yeah your point about like if you have duress you don't really have consent is important right Like sometimes sometimes people talk about distinction between assent and consent right so when you when you uh, agree to work for a for a boss but you have to do it because otherwise say you'll starve or you'll be made homeless you assent to that in a certain kind of sense but you don't truly consent to it because it is under duress the duress being if you don't do this then you will be made homeless your children will suffer etc
1: there's a the punishment
2: exactly and like we often think about this in sort of moralistic ways right like if some person is coerced or some person is under duress then there must be another person, a specific other person to blame for that. So we can say, well, look, when, say, say you, the uh, employer, the boss, hires me, the worker, uh, if I am not truly consenting or if I am under duress, it must be your fault. But also conversely, if you haven't done anything inherently wrong, then I can't possibly be under duress. And that's not really the case here, right? Because you can, like, through no fault of your own, you just show up and you're hiring the best person for the job And if you don't do it, somebody else will. Even if you've done nothing wrong personally, it's still the case that any of the workers who are applying for that job are under duress to do so and will be under duress to stay in that job as well, unless we suffer the consequences of not having a job and not having that income. I think what you say about autonomy is also good, right? Like Marx thinks about freedom in terms of self-directed activity. So the basic idea is, look, if I'm controlling and directing my own activity, then I'm free if somebody else is controlling it or something else is controlling it, then I'm not controlling it. And then I'm not free. That's what it's like at work, right? Like we are not controlling that activity. It's being, con- our activity is being controlled by our bosses, by our employers, not by ourselves. So the story you you mentioned, yeah, I think examples of that actually show us something really important about the power that people, that bosses have over workers in our society, right? Cause you can say, look, this usually doesn't happen. And, Maybe that's true, right? But the fact that it happens means that bosses had that power over workers all along, right? The fact that they only exercise it rarely, or that we only know that they exercise in these ways uh, now, um, the fact that this happens shows that throughout that whole time, even when they didn't order their workers or or force their workers to do these things, bosses already had this power. Uh, in, In a lot of sort of liberal thought, they often think a lot about sort of abuse of power, but they don't really think too critically about people having power over others, that is hierarchical social relations. Because I think one of the important insights of a lot of, especially socialist feminism, is that relations of hierarchy not only enable abuse, but also tend to produce abuse, right? So if you have a society where it's not the case that some people have a lot of systematic power over others, there probably will be a lot less abuse, and it will be harder for abusers to abuse people. But I think it's also the case that when you have very hierarchical relations, when you have relations where some people have a lot of arbitrary power over others, that sets people up for being abusive because it makes it easier for them to do so. And it tends to shape people in ways that make them more likely to be abusers.
1: And even outside of that story I gave you about the fast food workers, we have the famous case of Harvey Weinstein, which is essentially the same framework. Yeah. And like you said, right? Just because they don't exercise that power doesn't mean they don't have that power. And that's the real problem. Just because they haven't abused it yet or it's rarely abused doesn't mean that power should exist in the first place. Because if it exists, then it still can be abused. You can't rely on the kindness of our oppressors not to oppress us. Exactly. Now, did Marx say how we'd get from here to socialism? Um, Basically, no.
2: as I mentioned earlier, like most of the splits and further developments we see in Marxism are further developments of strategy and their disagreements about strategy.
1: But he did say then that it does have to happen after capitalism though, right? So in, in various strands of Marxism, there is disagreement about that. We have enough of
2: Marxist writings that we have a very clear idea of, of what Marx thought about this. He thought that it was necessary in order to get communism. He thought that at least some place had to have developed capitalism and that that capitalism would have to develop modern-day industry and technology to a certain degree. He did not think that every single society had to first have capitalism before it moved on to communism. There are people who think that that's what Marx says, but Marx, in a series of letters to Vera Zazulich, who was a, a Russian social democrat, Uh, that is a Russian Marxist, Marx, in those letters, he makes this clear. He thinks, uh, because he's writing about, in that case, they're having a disagreement about Russia. So a bunch of Russian Marxists thought, well, look, Russia is still a feudal society. So this is the late 1800s. Russia is still a feudal society. So in order to get to communism, they first have to develop capitalism. And only after capitalism has matured in Russia can they then have communism. And Marx says, uh, actually, that's not what he thinks, and he thinks they are wrong. Uh, He says very clearly in especially the drafts of those letters, but also the final version, that he thinks it's only necessary for somewhere in the world to have invented capitalism and developed modern day technology for anywhere in the world to become a communist society regardless of sort of where they're starting out. Um, So he thinks somewhere has to have a capitalism first, but he doesn't think that every particular society has to first have capitalism before it can have uh, communism. Now, Marx doesn't give us any detailed plans about how to get to a sort of free future society. He thinks that we have to figure that out for ourselves depending on our situation, depending on our context, depending on the particular society, the time and the place that we're in. So for example, what's best in France in the 1870s isn't necessarily the approach that's best for China in the early 1900s or say the US today. Uh, But Marx does kind of give us He mentions two brief models Um, in the Communist Manifesto. His main idea is, look, first we get universal suffrage. That will be enough for the working class to have effective power over the state, and they will be able to use that power to transition to communism. Um, After 1871, there's something called the Paris... So in 1871, there's something called the Paris Commune. Now, basically, this is a... a It happens throughout France, but it's mainly a city-wide uprising during which ordinary people establish their own institutions of popular rule throughout the whole city. Uh, And they're influenced by a bunch of different socialist ideas, um, not Marxism in in much detail. But Marx, after that, uses this as his model for how a transition to communism can work. So the basic idea is you establish a distinct set of popular institutions Uh, that is distinct from the capitalist state distinct from the economy that are sort of free and truly democratic and you use these new institutions to take control of society and to restructure it in a truly sort of free and democratic way and marx writes in i think the 1872 preface to the communist manifesto um, that he sort of changed his mind about about the ideas there but again I want to emphasize that Marxist is mainly a con- what's called a contextualist. He says strategy has to be determined by our context, by our situation, uh, and what we think makes the most sense in-, in light of that.
1: Now, with modern socialists, do they agree with the cynicalists about the need for unions?
2: So I um, think essentially all brands of, of Marxism agree that unions are important and valuable and essential. Um, They tend to disagree mainly on the role that unions should have. And, for example, a lot of Marxists, for example, Leninists and Maoists, will think that you also need political parties in addition to, for example, radical unions. Whereas uh, people like anarcho-syndicalists or certain kinds of what's called neutral syndicalists, uh, they think that parties aren't necessary, that the main vehicle of transition will be unions. And that you don't necessarily need distinct party organizations in addition to this. So I think there's, there's, I would say, almost universal agreement among uh most kinds of anarchists and Marxists, that unions are absolutely important, both for making life more livable under capitalism and for long term trying to change the world.
1: And for people who aren't familiar with them, can you explain what exactly is a union?
2: Uh, what is a union? So basically it's an ongoing organization set up by workers to fight for their interests at minimum this typically means uh, better wages and conditions and sometimes in the more radical forms of unionism it involves trying to change society in much more fundamental ways as well like replacing capitalism sexism racism and so on
1: and why are strikes such an important part of unions and ultimately labor rights
2: Uh, The main reason they're really important is because strikes and the threat of strikes is effective. It's a very effective way for workers to win significant and lasting improvements in their lives and in their society more generally. Um, So they're one of the most traditional tools of labor movements across the world, precisely because they work. Um, The main reason they work is by stopping production from taking place or stopping the, the sort of services and the make of goods and services from taking place until their employers give in. So in other words, you're disrupting the functioning of an organization that the, your boss or or your sort of overlord needs to function. And you're stopping that operation, you're disrupting that operation until they give you what they want. And historically strikes have won workers a bunch of things worldwide that like at least in some places we used to take for granted and are nice things like 10-hour workdays and then the eight-hour workdays, things like weekends, holidays, sick pay, and like a lot more. So, you know, the, the the good things, essentially.
1: So ultimately, labor rights are just human rights. I think that's the part that a lot of people miss is when these strikers are striking, there's a lot of lack of empathy or compassion because they think it's something other or something unrelated to them or unrelated to human beings. But this is ultimately human beings asking for human rights?
2: Essentially, yes, right? I mean, for anyone who potentially needs to have a job at some point, labor rights really are human rights. And it, they benefit the vast majority of people. But I want to say, improving wages and conditions for, for workers, I think, really leads to better better overall sort of effects on all of society. So if you look at the statistics, the countries that traditionally have so slightly less wealth inequalities, slightly better wages for the poorest and the, and the worst off, tend to be better to live in, even for the we- very wealthiest. But historically, the, the richest and most powerful people in society tend to oppose them. Uh, and the reason I think they tend to oppose them is because an active working class, an, an active union movement that is actually winning significant the significant demands, significant improvements, often does come at a cost to their power within the workplace and within the economy right if workers are able to force employers if they're able to force capitalists to give them better wages better conditions and they're able to control and limit what bosses can do to their workers whenever they want that takes away a certain amount of their social power and i think that's one of the reasons why they oppose it so strongly i think um i think oppressors People are really at the at the top of hierarchies tend to react very strongly against people trying to remove those hierarchies, even if it leads to sort of better lives and better outcomes for everyone.
1: The ultra rich seem like they can naturally develop class solidarity, where the rest of us kind of have to work at it. You know,
2: I mean, I think that's true, right? I mean, we I mean, the last few decades we've seen plenty of class struggle. It's just mostly been waged uh, and won by the upper classes, reducing welfare, reducing uh, working class people's rights. Uh, they affect the of lowering wages, etc.
1: No matter what they pretend on the surface level or what they say in media, really rich people tend to get along.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it was at Ellen <laughs> meeting with like George W. Bush and everything. That's uh, because, you know, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, does George W. Bush have lots of awful views? Like, yeah, of course it does. Did he cause like hundreds of thousands if not you know the odd million or two innocent people to 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 die unnecessarily it's like yes he does but at the end of the day he's part of the same class and that's what matters we need to be civil and and care about each other because at the end of the day, class solidarity is more important than you know murdering lots of people
1: yes we go to the same country club it'd be really weird if uh, you know i didn't like him and i had to keep running into him you know yeah so moving on what is socialism's connection with environmentalism? Do they make natural allies? So, in in a broad
2: sense, there have been a bunch of socialists that have been concerned with the natural environment for sort of a long time. You have people, um, a, a very well known geographer in his day called Elise Reclus. He's not very well known now, um, but he he wrote critically about the sort of destruction of the natural environment uh, by human beings and by capitalism in particular. Um, you, it um, seems a, a well-known anarchist. Uh, there's people like uh, on the Marxist side um, and the more sort of state-positive socialist side. People like William Morris, who similarly sort of lamented the destruction of the environment under capitalism. And one of the things he wanted for a good future sort of socialist society was a much better care of the environment and humans to be sort of more in touch with with nature and be able to enjoy it, it a lot more. Um, Marx has an interesting history here because he was actually very up to date with some of the the research at the time into the destruction that human beings were wreaking on the natural environment Um, there's a concept of of metabolic rift which is a very complicated idea but but very basically it's the idea that instead of having this sort of more or less circular nutrient cycle where you have a certain number, amount of nutrients in the soil, it gets taken up by plants, it gets eaten by, say, cattle, humans eat the cattle, it comes out of us, goes back into the earth, and you have these sort of cyclical, stable uh, processes that can last and uh, nourish human and, and other animal life for a long time. You end up with a situation where loads of nutrients get taken up from the soil in major agricultural countries, gets shipped into cities where it essentially, uh, where it then comes out in terms of human waste, gets thrown into the, the water and the local sort of soil in the cities, more or less sort of poisoning, say, say the water involved, but doesn't get put back into the soil. So you end up with depleting the soil uh, from lots of its nutrients and then having to introduce artificial nutrients in order to keep things going. And they were concerned about the long-term effects of this. Uh, and Marx was one of the few socialist and very few, I think, political economists at all during his day to actually care about this. Um, Now, of course, since Marx lived, we now know about things like human-made global warming, which people didn't know about at the time. But the sort of metabolic rift theory has been used by contemporary ecologists to analyze um, different forms of environmental destruction and degradation caused by human beings and particularly by, by the capitalist economy. Um, so there's a really good book on Marxist views on this by someone called Kohei Saito, uh, which is called something like Marxist Ecology. And there are other people like John Bellamy Foster and others who have worked on Marx and ecology that have gone through this in, a much, in much more detail. I think another thing that's an important contribution that Marx has here is how his economic theory can be used to explain why capitalist society is so uniquely ecologically destructive. Because if we have these impersonal forces that are constantly forcing our businesses to grow and expand no matter what the cost, and it's also the case that these are constantly influencing and controlling our politicians to prevent them from doing anything that might limit profits, then we have an explanation right, for why our societies not only are refusing to do anything about these problems, but often are refusing to acknowledge that these problems even exist to begin with. Uh, and I think that's I think one of the major insights of of Marxist sort of political economy is an explanation for why capitalism is so uniquely environmentally destructive. I think this doesn't necessarily mean that there's no solution and that there's no hope. But what it does mean is that we can't rely on the wealthy on the capitalist class, and we can't rely just on sort of politics as normal to solve these problems. We need broad social movements taking disruptive direct action. If we want to fight for and if we want to press our societies, or at least press the rich and the powerful in our societies to actually do something meaningful.
1: So something I mentioned at the outset of this conversation with you is the Cold War. This is where much of the disinformation about socialism started. Now, what is the Cold War for people who've heard the term and always pretended they knew what it was, but probably didn't?
2: So I think essentially the Cold War was a kind of prolonged international tension between, on the one hand, the United States and its allies, and on the other hand, the Soviet Union or the USSR and its allies on the other hand. This occasionally flared up in, in wars, like in Afghanistan and in Vietnam, and basically both powers tried to divide the world into either capitalism, as a very sort of pro-US type capitalism, or Soviet Union-type central planning. Uh, In in most of the wars, the US was the aggressor, especially in what it considered to be its zone of influence, Uh, for example, throughout Latin America, where they would depose anyone they didn't like. The exception here, I think, being Castro, who they tried to depose but didn't manage to, Uh, although there are some exceptions to this. So one exception to this, of course, is the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan.
1: Why did America fear communism so much?
2: I think the main reason is because towards the end of the Second World War, U.S. planners correctly realized that the world would be left with sort of one major empire, which was the United States. And they were planning for essentially international hegemony, which by and large, I I think they achieved. And they saw the USSR and eventually uh, China as threats to that imperial hegemony mainly because, again, there were powers that were that were large and that were not controlled by the United States or controlled by one of the United States' allies. A particular thing they were worried about was, of course, that socialist ideas were very popular, especially among anti-colonial movements. Um, and the U.S. was very scared of essentially what so people like No. Trotsky called a good example. They were scared that if you have, say, a government elected in Chile or Iran that's vaguely social democratic, tries to nationalize, or maybe tax some foreign wealth, then more countries will follow suit and eventually U.S. imperial hegemony will be weakened. And as a result of that, they supported coups against any democratically elected socialist leaders, for example, in Chile, uh, as they still do, for example, more recently in countries like Honduras and Bolivia. So yeah, I think the main reason they fear communism is less that they're worried about communism itself and more that the U.S. empire is scared of anything that might threaten its continued international hegemony.
1: But the U.S. always says it's fighting for freedom and democracy. So that's the excuse. But what were they really doing?
2: Well, I mean, that's, that's sort of obviously a lie because they keep, uh, like I said, they keep supporting coups against democratically elected governments, uh, like they did in, in Chile, like they did in Bolivia, like they did in Honduras. In reality, they support sort of representative states, what we often call democratic states, only when um, they elect politicians that are on the U.S.'s side and that the United States likes. If they ever elect someone that the U.S. doesn't like, uh, they will either invade it or they will try to support a coup or some other forms of getting rid of them.
1: So to that point, I've always been bothered by this contradiction between saying you're fighting for freedom and democracy by invading and attacking other countries without their permission and forcibly taking their freedom and ignoring their sovereignty. And we still do that. And we still disguise it by saying we're fighting for freedom. We're so brainwashed. All the U.S. has to do is say it's for freedom. And we here in the U.S., we don't question it. Why are you bombing those people for their freedom? Oh, okay. And it's doubly bad because you're harming people. Then you victim blame. You blame the people that you just harmed. Right. It's like that stupid number from the Black Book of Communism, where they count the millions of Koreans the U.S. killed as part of the death count for communism. And it's like, why? Because you can't put it on the US, right? They were freeing them. So you can't blame the US for killing them. They were asking for it. So then essentially, the US has never killed anyone in a war. They only freed people and the death count belongs to whoever the US is fighting. And the propaganda is so strong that Americans don't even question it. You see these commercials for the military or some news report, we're fighting for freedom. And people are like, Okay, if that's what you say, that must be it because we would never fight for any other reason, right? And so that is still pervasive today and that's still something that very much bothers me. And I think that is one of the main reasons why I have the politics that I do. And I think that's a, a main reason why a lot of people are now developing, especially like people of color or people who have roots somewhere else or people who are just very compassionate have the politics that they do. And I would also add that I think in the 60s, and somewhat today, there used to be this alliance with certain types of libertarians and leftists around this big tent of anti-war. And uh, it was bigger then because there was a war, right? The Vietnam War. Hmm. We're in so many wars and we're unaware of it. But I think it still exists to some extent today.
2: Yeah, I think I agree with that. I, I sort of politically came of age during the, the run-up to the Iraq War and the Iraq War itself. And one of the things that that very much impressed me because we didn't get a huge amount of of sort of the U.S. media coverage, but it was quite clear to us that the U.S. media completely repeated the lies of the George W. Bush administration about about the weapons of mass destruction, about the support for 9/11 and the involvement in it, etc. And did everything they could to essentially push various kinds of fake news and and support. George Arbubush's plans to invade Iraq, which of course they had long before the uh, before 9-11 happened, incidentally. But one thing that really impressed me, uh, partly because the the very large peace movement and the anti-war movement in the US at the time, was that a majority of Americans were against the war before it even started, despite all of this propaganda. Uh, as one well of the, sort of, I think, really important lessons of that war is that even if you convince the majority of citizens of a country that the country shouldn't go to war. If that's what the sort of top dogs of the country want, they will do it anyway. And I think, I think probably that was an important sort of political awakening for a lot of us because it tells us something about how democratic our political systems really are, um, at least in my view.
1: Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about if it is a democratic country, how come we don't really have a say in so much of what happens in our government and what our country does to other countries? Yeah. Now, some of your work is on prefigurative politics. What is that?
2: Prefigurative politics is basically the idea that if we want certain kinds of future social relations and institutions, then we should start building them in the society that we have as much as possible. Uh, And that's especially the case if we want social relations that are a lot more free, a lot more equal. And a lot more democratic than we have anywhere in our societies right now then in order to sort of reach a society that is structured through these kinds of relations in the future we need to start sort of constructing them here and now as much as we can and there are kind of three arguments for this Um, one about powers one about sort of drives or motivations and one about consciousness Um, i'm just going to mention them kind of briefly Um, so the idea the sort of powers-based argument is to say look if we want, say, a free and democratic future society, then we need people who have the real possibility, who have the power to organize society in these kinds of ways, to be able to practically problem solve, to be able to convince others that these things are useful, and to be able to run complex forms of decision making in these kinds of ways. And the only way people are going to sort of acquire those powers is by practicing them, by, by developing them together, right? Like like with most other things you do, right? Like how do you learn to, I don't know, drive a car? By actually practicing driving a car. How do you learn to, uh, to grapple? By, you know, actually grappling people. How do you learn to sing? It's not by reading about how to sing, although not only reading about how to sing, but it's by actually practicing singing. And again, sure, you might need to read theory, you might need to reflect on things, you might need to do all sorts of things, But at the end of the day, one of the things you have to do to actually get good at something is to practice it. And that includes if you're thinking about how to organize society in fundamentally different ways. The second argument is about drives, right? At least most sort of free socialists, we have this idea that one of the reasons why we want a society that is much more free and democratic is because we'll enjoy a life like that a lot more. Now, many of us, we've never really been parts of, of organizations or part of institutions that are structured in particularly free or equal or democratic ways. And we might, if we've, if we've never experienced them, we might not think that they would be any better. We might not even be able to imagine how they could be any better. But one of the things we can do, if we start constructing them right now, we can give people and we can give ourselves experiences of living and interacting in these different ways And that, in turn, can make us more motivated to spread them and introduce these kinds of social relations, these kinds of practices in other aspects of our lives as well. Um, And the third argument is sort of consciousness argument. They say, look, if if we want a, a really fundamentally different future society... We need people to be aware of what that kind of society could and should be like. We need people to be aware of what's wrong with our society, and we need people to be aware of how we can change from where we are now to the kind of future that we want. And the best way to help us understand these things, to make us aware of them, to help us acquire skills, again, things like practical problem solving um, and explaining it to others and so on is by actually practicing doing so ourselves because when we practice doing it we acquire experiences of doing it and those experiences in turn give us the experiences that we can be conscious of so we can we can think of sort of prefigurative politics very broadly as a way of thinking about what the kind of slogan the emancipation of the working classes must be conquered by the working classes themselves what that kind of slogan requires in practice which is a, a slogan that Marx and Engels came up with. There's there's a kind of general historical point that this builds on. Um, as I, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, right? But, but shifts in one type of society that we see in history, they tend to always sort of build on and generalize institutions and relations that have already developed, at least like to some extent, in the society before it. So we've seen, for example, that feudalism in Europe grew out of the kind of late Roman slavery of the crumbling Roman Empire. Um, I think I mentioned earlier how capitalist social relations developed, especially in cities, already within feudalism long before the societies as a whole transitioned into capitalism. And in the Russian Revolution, the kind of councils that they called Soviets were developed in cities long before the 1917 Revolution. And in the countryside, they were usually the products of sort of long-standing peasant communes that had been organizing rural life for a long, long time. And, of course, the development of central planning, in turn, built on existing bureaucracies that were inspired, for example, uh, by the German post office and by capitalist management techniques that had already been developed and that uh, the Bolshevik Party structure were very enthusiastic about. There's, there's, I guess, a shift in what prefigurative politics uh, or what's, what's often called means-ends coherence uh, refers to. So traditionally, so early on, the debates we see among anarchists, syndicalists, and Marxists really tend to focus on formal decision-making structures. So the the nuts and bolts of how do large-scale organizations make concrete decisions. As the 20th century went on, however, this focus began to change a little bit, and I think in many ways for the better. Uh, The the details are unclear. There's no proper history about this yet, although that would be great. But, But there are two things that I want to emphasize, I think. Uh, one is that explicit talk about prefigured, of thinking about prefigurative politics tended to expand to include, them, include a much broader range of, sort of social phenomena. So people started to think about how we can prefigure not only the decision-making structures of a future society, but also how we could prefigure much sort of broader, more free and equal social relations. So prefiguring societies with, without gender oppression, without racism, uh, how we can be prefigurative in, in education or in culture. Uh, sort of very broadly construed. Uh, what also sometimes happened is that sometimes in some organizations, the focus shifted a little bit away from uh, the structure of large-scale organizations to these, more, to these other aspects of what we might call prefigurative politics. So nowadays, pr- the term prefigurative politics gets used very, very broadly, not just for sort of formal decision-making structures, but for much broader forms of social relations uh, and practices that we might want to start implementing in the here and now so that we can reach a future that's much more like that.
1: So we've discussed about capitalism and how it can restrict freedom and democracy. But something that isn't highlighted a lot for people when they think about Marxism because it's been portrayed as such a boogeyman is Marxism's goals for freedom and freedom from alienation, human flourishing, human development, and the importance of having time, leisure. So can you speak to us a little bit about that and what Marx's views on that was?
2: So Marx, what Marx thinks is that what sort of what makes human beings so truly rich, what sort of really matters in human life, at the end of the day is human development and flourishing. It's not per se how much money you have or um, how like happy you are at any one time necessarily. It's your complete set of options, what you really can do and what you really can be. So he takes the view that a, a truly sort of richer version of, so let's take a version of you that, for example, is, is stronger, is better at boxing, is perhaps a more caring and compassionate person, is a better version of you than a version of you that has less of all of those
1: things. And you're talking about me specifically as somebody who enjoys boxing.
2: You specifically, yeah. And Marx is a pluralist here, right? He says, look, there's no, there's no like, particular form of development or flourishing that we all want. There's no particular yardstick or metric or standard of what makes for like sufficient or enough or perfect or full human development. It's this open-ended idea that human development in general is valuable. And for each of us, we, as part of our lives, sort of figure out, what are the ways in which we want to develop and the ways in which we most want to flourish, right? Like we can't be good at everything and we probably don't want to be. Like some of us care a lot about being able to to sing and to dance really well. Others really like grappling, others really like boxing. Some people care about learning many different languages and being brilliant at them and so on. And the the best way of me for developing isn't necessarily the best way for you to develop. but what Marx does think is that there are a few things that are important just sort of in general for any human human being um, to live a sort of well-developed and flourishing life. And the thing he really cares about there is freedom. Uh, so Marx's idea of freedom is you are free if and only if you self-direct your own activity. And he thinks that's especially important for two reasons. So one reason is uh, it's especially important as a very valuable mode of human development that flourishing sort of in itself. And the other reason, he thinks, is that it's particularly important for promoting the development of a wide range of other human powers. So here's an example. Have you ever, like, if you ever sort of tried to read something like Shakespeare in school and sort of not enjoyed it, perhaps not understood it very well, and you're mainly doing it because... Your teacher tells you to. You're sort of forced to do it, and you have to have a test at the
1: end, and that's kind of it. And you don't even really want to do it because they're making you do it, right? Maybe if I came upon it on my own, I probably would want to do it.
2: Yeah. So I remember this. Like we read like bits of Romeo and Juliet in like middle school, and I didn't really understand very much. I didn't like it very much. And mm-hmm. um, but but then you know a few years go by, and nobody's forcing me to do it anymore. But I go to a performance, um, actually at a at fortress that. Akashu's Fortress in, in Oslo, um, and I enjoy it tremendously. I, I feel like I really understand what's going on. I'm appreciating the poetry. Uh, of, of course, it helps that there are real actors doing it. Um, but I'm appreciating it so much more, and I feel like I'm sort of understanding much more what's going on, and I can have much more of a conversation afterwards about what I like, what I didn't like, what I think it does really well in that play, and so on. And I think one of the main things that's different there is... When I had to do it at school, I wasn't directing or controlling my own activity in any way. But when I went to see it on my own, I was directing my own activity. I was doing it completely freely on my own, sort of free time. Didn't have to do anything. Wasn't studying for a test. Didn't do it for money. Nothing like that. Just did it because I wanted to. And I did it exactly how I wanted to and on the terms that I chose. And as a result, I think I learned about it much, much better. And of course, I enjoyed it a lot more. And this is I think, the ki- this is one of the reasons why leisure time is super important to Mark. Because leisure time, time when you're not at work and nobody's telling you what to do, is truly free time. It's time during which you, not necessarily in all cases, right? Because if, if you have, say, uh, if you're, for example, living, you're a woman in a patriarchal household and you have somebody ordering you to do lots of housework, you're not acting freely, mm-hmm. right? But in true leisure time, um, when you're, say, pursuing your hobbies or your sort of passions in life, free from anyone forcing you to, and also free from the plesh- pressures of earning a living or doing something for money, you get to truly appreciate what you're doing much more. And you also get to sort of grow and develop your abilities to do that a lot more, I think. I, I'm, I'm sort of a nerd, right? So I read a lot of like weirdly specific Marxist theory. And I notice a difference when I teach certain things in classes and because I'm at the university, I have to grade, be part of this like grading regime and everything. And I see a huge difference when people read, for example, bits about Marx or anarchism or or any other political theory because it's part of a course, even if they're interested on their own, but just because it's part of the course and they will be great at the end compared to if they're reading it in their free time for no other reason that they are really, really interested in the ideas. And I see, I think people learn a lot more and a lot better when they learn about it the way they want and when they completely direct their own activities in doing it than when they're doing it under unfree situations, right? Where people have power over them, where they're being evaluated at the end, where they're doing it for money or, or something like that. And I think the, the real reason Marx wants, wants communism is because he thinks it will be a society where not only will you have like your leisure time, and he thinks you will have a lot more leisure time, uh, but he also thinks that if you're really in control of your own individual life, That requires that you're in control over your social life. So you have to be in control of your own workplace as well. And if you're really in control of your workplace and you have power over it, just like everyone else who works there does, you will enjoy it a lot more. You will be able to appreciate it a lot more and you'll be able to grow and develop as a human being a lot more than if you don't do that.
1: It makes perfect sense. And it actually connects to what we were talking about earlier about duress. right? You don't have real freedom if it's under duress. Or what people have been saying for years, you don't have freedom unless you have the boot off your neck. Hmm. And it seems like that's what Marx was getting at, is under socialism or communism, it is about living in a society with that boot off your neck where you can self-direct where you're not under duress. And I feel like it's the point a lot of very serious, very no fun socialists and Marxist-Leninists sometimes miss is they focus so much on the work, they forget the point of why we want to improve work, which is to have more freedom.
2: I I totally agree. I think one of the biggest problems among people who who call themselves Marxists and to consider themselves to be Marxists is that they sometimes focus much more on what they're against than on what they are for. So they they sort of know that they are against capitalism, against imperialism, against say the u s Empire, but they sometimes lose track of what is supposed to be I, to me at least and, and to historically most Marxist movements, the whole point of caring about Marx's ideas to begin with, which is the overall goal of like universal human emancipation, because there are loads of things that might be good at say defeating empires or Replacing capitalism or taking state power, but that don't necessarily lead us towards a truly free society And if you only focus on what you're against, you might end up supporting things that are actually quite awful and quite oppressive and very unfree uh, Precisely because you've lost track of what's supposed to be the positive goal of this whole thing, right? Which is to try to sort of enable as much human development and flourishing as possible through uh, universal human emancipation
1: and you also become the kind of person, if you are just so stuck on what you're against, right? You become that kind of person who's really annoying to talk to online or no fun <laughs> to be around in real life. So you become a stick in the mud. That too, right?
2: <laughs> I mean, which is which is not to say that, you know, you can't be, you know, very aware of the positive things, but also be a stick in the mud. Like I think I'm good at being both those things. <laughs> um,
1: well, I think for me, that's why I feel like a lot of these niche leftist groups that are about gaming or the one I run about MMA or weightlifting or art or comic books or whatever, in a way they have their own purity. People think it's like not pure to Marx, but actually they are because they still are focusing on the ultimate goal rather than just what you're against, which is like, okay, I like Marxism so that I have more time to pursue these other interests, to develop myself and self-direct myself as a human being, the humanities, right? (laughs) To be better human beings.
2: I mean, one thing that's a constant among sort of most really large scale uh, working class and, and socialist movements, that I think we've really forgotten a lot about, is that one of the things they all did, some Marxist movements didn't, but the ones that were really large, like the German Marxist movement, they did this very, very well. What they did was they created a whole set of counter institutions and a whole set of, a whole like collection of counterculture around their movement. A, count, a culture that was supposed to be uh, controlled and led by working class people themselves, purely for the sake of doing what they wanted to and in, and enjoying life. So they were directly making life better, not only by sort of fighting for better wages and conditions, but by creating a, a, their own culture the way they wanted to. So they set up things like reading groups, they set up their own educational institutions. They had choirs, they had concerts, they had music programs. Uh, they often set up their own sort of healthcare because this was before public healthcare became a thing, their own insurance schemes, et cetera.
1: Sports groups?
2: Sports groups were tremendously, like of sports leagues were initially developed by labor unions uh, and then eventually made like the national sports league of like soccer or something. Um, like a huge number of major sports leagues started off as, uh, as workers' sports leagues. Um, and again, this was important for a bunch of reasons, uh, not only because um, they, so one reason is obvious, right? Like if you're hanging out, you're enjoying life more with a bunch of people around you, going into a political meeting and talking about difficult things about strategy will be a lot easier because you're essentially talking to um, like friends and acquaintances rather than random strangers, right? But you also get to develop yourself physically. You get to sort of relax and have fun. You get a much more sort of rich um, spiritual and physical life just by having these things. And it's also sort of proves to people that we can self-organize these things. We can really build these new sort of relations and these new practices that are much more enjoyable and much fun and that help us kind of become richer people uh, in the sort of human development sense right now uh, as part of building towards a much better future.
1: And that's the social aspect of socialism, or at least you could think of it that way, right? Because capitalism creates this alienation where you're just this drone in a cubicle by yourself, which has been shown in so many movies because they're in movies because we can relate to it because a lot of people have been through that or at least can relate to that sentiment, even if they've never worked in an office, right? Yeah. Versus, right, what you said, the socialists created all these countercultures and choirs and sports groups and art clubs and whatever, because that was about being together communally as a social society. And it's about developing solidarity with others, right? So it is in contrast with this self-interest individualistic side of capitalism, which in a lot of ways seems very sociopathic versus this other centered, we're all in this together. And that's the ultimate goal is having just as much freedom in our social life.
2: Yeah, exactly right.
1: So where can people find out more about your book and red plateaus?
2: Yeah. So, um, our Twitter handle is at our plateaus. It turns out plateaus is surprisingly difficult to spell. It's P-L-A-T-E-A-U-S. Um, if you spell it wrong, don't worry, you'll probably still find it. Uh, we always misspell it and it normally <laughs> works out. Um, so yeah, Twitter handle at our plateaus. Our YouTube channel is www.youtube.com slash C redplateaus. And I think that's it. Uh, the, the book I have co-written uh, is called Prefigurative Politics, Building Tomorrow Today. Um, you can find it on, on Amazon or I guess wherever else you find books.
0: Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.